Hey, I'm writers. Y'all know and hopefully love our sponsor, Author Accelerator, and we have some good news. They've fully revised and updated both the fiction and nonfiction book coach certification programs. Turn your love of reading into a career you love with a self-paced program you can access from anywhere. With more than 100 hours of training, videos, case studies, and worksheets, Author Accelerator's program teaches you the key editorial skills, client management strategies, and tools needed to help writers reach their goals and to help you start a thriving book coaching business. We've loved Author Accelerator for a long time. We trust them. They do really great work. And this is more than just an online course. You can take the skills you learn and apply them with real life clients through three practicums designed to help you practice helping authors go from confusion to clarity with their novel idea. Yeah, you can work with real writers and it's terribly nerve wracking, I hear, but I can tell you from the other perspective, it can be nerve wracking for the author too. Um, KJ has done this and the author she worked with during one of her practicums just got a book deal with for that project. So this is real. To see this, if this work is right for you, Author Accelerator offers a $99 five-day challenge all about getting your business idea out of your head and onto the page. But hashtag AmWriting listeners get it for half off. Head to bookcoaches.com slash podcast and enter the code podcast at checkout for 50% off. Bookcoaches.com slash podcast. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay. Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. I'm Jess Leahy, and this is the hashtag AmWritingPodcast. This is the podcast about all things writing, all things writing and editing and publishing and speaking and proposing and querying. We, we talk about all the things, long things, short things, fiction, nonfiction. Today, though, we're speaking about speaking. I put out an episode a little while ago about the minute details of how speaking events work, what can go wrong, what can go right, how to manage things if stuff does start to go wrong. And I pu- after we published that episode, I was asked very specifically in the hashtag and writing uh, Facebook group to answer the question in more depth and specifically to ask the, to answer the question about how one gets a speaking agent, how one finds one, how you, anyway, let's back up. I'm Jess Leahy. I am the author of the New York Times bestselling The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. I am also a former journalist. I was a writer at The Atlantic, at The New York Times, at The Washington Post. I had a column at The the, uh, New York Times called The Parent Teacher Conference for three years. And now I have this amazing job where my, essentially my job is to get curious about things, research the crap out of them, write proposals about the things that I'm researching the crap out of, and hopefully get to write a book about it. I get to translate curiosity and answers in for the general public, and it's the coolest job ever. So speaking, obviously, is a natural outcropping of that because... No one, very few people want to go out there and read all of the studies on questions that they have. Very few people have, you know, the expertise, the the experience in 
statistics and translating those studies, figuring out what's a good study and what's a bad study, all that kind of stuff. So my job at its heart is to uh, do a lot of research and translate that research into usable information for the general public. And so going around and doing speaking events around the gift of failure or the addiction inoculation, my job is to say, look, I did all this research and here's what I found. And then to take it up a step, because we talked in that last episode about, this was two episodes ago, about the difference between, between academic speaking and sort of speaking to the lay audiences. It is a very different thing. You know, I, I went to a couple of, of conferences this year where people were giving presentations about their research and academic presentations, especially scientific academic presentations, follow a very specific um, format. And you can predict each section of the format. It's laid out. And uh, what's been interesting about it is that from the perspective of someone who does more of like a TED style presentation, which is my uh, research is embedded in a larger narrative. My speaking engagements tend to run about an hour with Q&A. And within that, there's a beginning, a middle, an end, an, a narrative arc. There are stories within the stories. There's a climax. There's a denouement. There's all of these, the similar stuff that we would talk about in, um, you know, in a narrative, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So within academic, however, it follows a very different set of rules. So understand that from the very beginning. So the kind of talk I get, if you've, I do, if you've watched TED Talks, you're familiar with it. TED Talks tend to be like 15 minutes, but my, and mine is an hour. Um, but what's nice about it is that um, my, I can talk about data through stories. That takes a while to be able to do, not just to um, have a really good grounding in the research and be able to refer to various studies or other authors, that kind of stuff, but also to, to have a fluidity, to have a fluency with the data so that if you or and with your presentations so that if you are on stage and you notice that there's a lot of rustling happening in the audience, which means your audience is getting bored, then you're able to move, switch. If I you look out in the audience and I'm seeing a lot of glowing faces, that means people are on their phones and they're bored. I am not being compelling enough. Is it rude that they're using their phones in the audience? Absolutely. Um, as someone who does a lot of speaking, do I try not to do that when I'm at other people's presentations? Absolutely. Super rude. But people are going to do it. And it's a, it's a way for me to understand that I have to step up my game. If their Instagram is more interesting than me, someone they went out of their way to come and see on the stage, then I'm not doing my job well enough. Right. The other thing you under, need to understand about my type of presentations is that I don't use um, slides. I don't use PowerPoints. I don't use and I do that for a very specific reason, because I want to set myself apart from the academic presentations, which tend to be very slide heavy. It also makes it so that there can be fewer technological snafus, right? I don't need to worry about the dongles. I don't need to worry about my slides loading. I don't need to have, you know, worry about suddenly the Wi-Fi going out. Um, the worst that can happen to me is the power can go out. And even then, you know, we've made it work. If the mics don't work, I have a teacher voice and I've made that work. So, so that's the perspective I'm coming from. And it's important that I tell you that because when you go looking for a speaking agent, you have to understand what arena you're playing in. And 
for the most part, what we're talking about is the arena that I just described to you, not the academic arena. Although I'll be going to a, um, a conference next year where I'm talking very specifically to academics about how to step up their speaking game so that they can speak to larger audiences than academic audiences. Um, they can appeal to a larger crowd and possibly um, you know, make money for their speaking. Whereas in academia, there tends to not be, there's maybe a small honorarium, but it tends to be a part of the job that you do. Maybe you get reimbursed for your travel and that kind of stuff. But in the speaking that I do and that any speaking agent is going to want to know about is, you know, there's an exchange for funds. Why on earth would a speaking agent take someone on if they're not getting paid? It doesn't make any sense, right? Okay. So I'm going to talk about my very specific experience in learning about and getting an agent and working with an agent. This is probably not everybody's experience. This could be wildly different from other people's experience, but this is my experience. And as always, I'm going to be honest about some money stuff, some percentages stuff, and, you know, and go from there. Because again, the whole point of this is flattening the learning curve for other people. So in the last episode where we talked about speaking, I mentioned that the very first ask I ever got was for an article I wrote that ran in the New York Times about um, coming of age ceremonies for people who are not part of religion, a religious faith. And um, I was asked by a, a group, uh, a Jewish foundation, to talk about it because they were having a whole day conference on reshaping the bar and bat mitzvah tradition. It was really cool. It was so much fun. But I had no idea what to ask. I asked my literary agent who wasn't even my literary agent at the time. And she was nice and threw out a number. And so that's how I got started. Now I have one talk under my belt. So at least I can say, yeah, I do speaking events. Now keep in mind at the same time, I had just gotten the deal for the, I just sold the gift of failure. So I was starting to think about how, and I knew a speaking career was what I wanted. I love, love my speaking events. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. You know, I have this really cool job where I get to be a hermit and very introverted for a big chunk of the time. But when I'm out there in the world, I have to be extremely out there, very social. It's very tiring. So the two work side by side beautifully for me. I mentioned that I had just gotten the book deal for The Gift of Failure. And as I said, I knew I wanted speaking to be a big part of my career. So I planned ahead for that from the very beginning. Some of you may have heard this story, but while I was researching and writing The Gift of Failure, I was thinking ahead to a year and a half out when the book would come out. How am I going to do this? I'm hearing that publishers aren't paying for book tours anymore unless you're Stephen King or, you know, whoever. So um, in order, I knew I was going to have to make my own book tour and I knew that was going to be really expensive. So I was hoping that what I could do is uh, fund it by doing book events that paid me. And that's not bookstore events, right? That's going to into schools and, and that kind of thing. So I started by thinking about schools and I wrote letters. I started compiling what's now a massive database. I have this huge database that I try to keep updated of, you know, who's in what job and what school district and what their email address is and what their physical address is. Because at first I actually wrote physical letters on paper, um, sometimes with a copy of the Gift of Failure article in it, sometimes with, you know, an outline of what I do as a speaker, what I could potentially do. And a lot of this was you know, guessing, because at that point, I'd really only done one event and it wasn't even about the gift of failure. So I had to start thinking about what this gift of failure event might look like. 
This is excruciating. That means I'm videotaping myself giving possible presentations. I'm having to watch myself. It's awful. It's, it's the worst, but I had to be, I had to be able to hit the ground running. One of the things that really can help you hit the ground running is by doing a lot of interviews doing podcast interviews in particular, you start to be able to negotiate questions. You know what lands well, you know what doesn't land well, you know what jokes work and what jokes don't work. Uh, so that was really helping me shape what I was going to be talking about. But I also know I need a narrative arc. So I had to write my hour long, 45 minute long talks from the perspective of needing a narrative arc. And that's a challenge. So I tried lots of different things. It's a reason now that I have a massive repertoire in my head of things that I could do. At this point, it's been almost, you know, whatever, 10 years um, or eight years. And I could go way back in time. I used to do, I had a talk version that I did uh, a long, long time ago that had some Shakespeare in it. And I had, based on the the quote that's at the beginning of The Gift of Failure, I don't tend to do that one anymore. It's more of a party trick now. When I I had to do it one time recently where I was being filmed for at a talk and they needed to reset the cameras. And so the audience was there. So just for fun, I did the Shakespeare party trick. I have to be able to practice those things over and over again so that I'm really fluent with the possible trajectories my my talk can take if that wrestling starts to happen, if that phones in the faces thing starts to happen. So you, th- I know I said I'm going to talk about getting an agent, but this is all prep for that. You can't just go to an agent and say, hey, I've never done anything. Will you take me on? I think my book might do well you're not ready for it at that point, right? So I'm still, you know, writing Gift of Failure, researching Gift of Failure and um, writing at towards the end, 2000. Um, then the number came up to just shy of 2000 letters that I wrote individually to school heads talking about what I could possibly do for them when my book came out. And it started to work. And I am so grateful and I'm so grateful to these people who took a shot on me when I had no history. Like you can't, you couldn't go to my website and see this massive list of all the schools where I've ever spoken, which is now over 300. You had to, <laughs> you had to just have some faith in me that I could do it. I had no reel. I had no video. And so actually uh, a year after The Gift of Failure came out, I wrote 100 thank you notes by hand to all of the people who invested in me early on because they were inv- they really were investors they gave me the testimonials they gave me the clout they gave me the names to actually have a list of places where i've spoken so if anyone wants to know, know where i've been and what i can do and maybe talk to people they know at other schools then i had this list As the book came out, that started to get a little bit easier. Um, I started being able to do other things, not just at schools, but at community organizations. I was hired by a law firm to come and do like a lunch and learn series. Those are great. Corporations have them all the time. The trick is finding them. It's not easy. They usually have to find you. But there are these lunch and learn events. I've done it at a law firm. I did it at Cliff Bar. I've done it in exchange for essentially all the Cliff Bars I could carry. They sent me home with this big bag of Cliff Bars. But I was in town anyway doing events for the launch. Uh, One person came to me. Some people stay on 
top of who is going to be on book tour, whose books are coming out. That's how Google found me when I did my Google Talk. The person there who's no longer there, who is running the Google Talk thing, he knew I was going to be in town and asked if I'd like to speak at Google. And anyway, so those things start to find you as people learn about your book coming out if you're getting um, if you're getting some publicity, which is great. Okay. So I'm starting to get leads, start to do talks. Um, the book launch goes great. I spent a whole week in the San Francisco area because I had lined up a couple of different things. I was learning as I was going, like, how do you split up your fees for the flights or the accommodations between schools? If I'm going to be at four different schools, who do I charge for the flights? It was all very complicated. Uh, I talked to other speakers who do it and you know, try, figured out some strategies. It was that there was a lot of negotiation, a lot of the reason that schools were the logical place for me to start is that the gift of failure really, uh, for me anyway, yes, I wrote it for parents, but I also really wrote it for educators. Plus I was a known quantity. So when I'm writing the head of a school or the head of, you know, or a principal or whatever, I'm saying, hi, I'm, I'm a teacher too. We're kind of in this together and here's what my experience is. So I couldn't expect a speaking agent to do better than I was doing at the time because there was this layer of trust that came in with me immediately as another educator. And especially within the independent school community, because the independent school community is very small, once word gets out who I am and what I can do, you know, you start to realize that everybody knows everyone within the independent school community. And then, of course, once you've got there are associations for independent schools in states or in regions. And once you start to do those, then that leads to other talks and you start to see how maybe I can be flexible about my price point for this talk because it's going to lead to a lot of other people seeing me that might lead to that talk. Or maybe I can invest some money here in sending out a lot of books because if I can get one talk, that will pay back the money for all the books I'm investing. Okay, so back to the speaker agent thing. While I'm doing all of these early talks, and, you know, gaining the trust of the people that I'm working with, um, I start asking them, when you work with speaking agents, who do you love? Who will you, who do you never want to work with? Like, who do you talk about as someone who's really made life easy for you and has been great to work with? And who would you prefer to never work with again? I was able to knock four speaking agencies off the list just through those communications. And no, I'm not going to name any names. If you contact me privately, I might do that. If you would like to know, you know, which ones. And there's one in particular that really has a huge hold on the academic crossover to the public audience. And that was the one that I heard most often. No, I never want to work with that agency again. So that was really easy for me to take off my list. And one name emerged as a name um, of someone that people loved. And that was my former agent, Michelle Feesmith at American Program Bureau. The thing about a, um, there are also different types of agencies, American Program Bureau and All American Speakers, and there's a couple of different ones. They're often hired to fill an entire roster for a conference. People will sometimes used to go to my agent, Michelle, and say, you know, we're, we'd like to fill the whole roster for this conference. 
who would you put on this panel? Now she can choose from one of two groups of speakers, right? She can deal, she can choose from her exclusive speakers, the speakers that she has an exclusive contract with, which is what I have currently with American Program Bureau. If you approach me about a talk, I have to refer you to my speaking agency. You have to go, if you approach me on my website, I'm going to have to forward you along to my current agent, Laura Oberman, because that's who is my agent and I have an exclusive deal with them. Some people have non-exclusive deals, like they want to be able to work with any speaking agency or they want to be able to take stuff on their own or friends of mine, uh, their spouse is their manager slash agent for speaking or there's another famous speaker whose sister is her manager slash agent for speaking. Um, there are lots of ways that this can work. For me right now, I have what's called an exclusive contract. And when I talked about signing a non-exclusive, that wasn't something they were really interested in. You can also see how an agency would be more interested in getting their exclusive speaker on the roster than a non-exclusive, just because the investment is greater in the exclusives, right? So I knew Michelle Feesmith was on my radar. American Program Bureau was on my radar. Now, how do I approach Michelle Feesmith? Well, I had a friend who was speaking at a conference and I said, oh my gosh, I would love to speak at that conference. Someone tweeted that they were listening to him speak at the conference. And so I emailed him and I said, oh, I understand you're speaking at such and such a conference. I would love to uh, speak at that conference someday. And he said, oh, I'm sitting here with my agent. Uh, she apparently had gone to that conference to watch some of her clients speak and to look at new prospects. And um, I'll mention her to you, uh, I'll mention you to her. So after that, I had a preliminary conversation with Michelle Fee Smith. And as I've mentioned in other podcast episodes, the process of gaining trust and support of an agent is a long process. The process of gaining trust and support from potential clients is a long process. Michelle told me something that I've always remembered and has turned out to be 100% true. The first year Michelle knows me or represents me, she will recommend me to a client and the client will say, oh, never heard of her or who? And then the second year they, she recommends me to that client, they'll say, oh yeah, I've heard of her. And then the third year that client will come to her and say, we've heard of this person named Jess Leahy, can you get her? So it is a long investment process. And so um, Michelle and I had that preliminary conversation and I did not sign with Michelle. She didn't offer for me to sign with her at that first conversation. I didn't have any video on my website. I didn't have the platform yet. Um, I was still untested. So along with that process of sort of nailing down who you might want to be your agent, talk to people. Who's your agent? Do you like working with them? How much, what percentage do they take? The, all of that kind of stuff. It's fairly common within the speaking agency landscape for speaking agencies to take 25% of the fee if they bring the speaking engagement to you, if it's their prospect. If I take the speaking prospect to my agency, then they take 20%. So, and within that, there's, you know, lots of different moving pieces, but that's the basic landscape. Some agencies take more, some take less. That's where I am. So that first conversation with Michelle got each us on each other's radar screens. And then I just kept doing what I was doing. And then I had another conversation with her because one of another friend of mine signed with her and they seemed really happy. So we had another conversation. And then finally in an email, 
uh, maybe two and a half, three years into this, I uh, emailed her and I said, man, you just keep coming up over and over again as someone that people really enjoy working with and are trusted. Can we have a real conversation? I think I have, you know, I have the video content now. I have some reels. I have things that can help you make a decision about whether or not we should work together. And that conversation was great. And she Uh, after she asked me if I wanted to work together, I signed a contract with them, an exclusive contract with them. And then we made an appointment for me to go to the agency um, to, uh, they happen to be based just outside of Boston. And for me, that was convenient. Um, I was in New Hampshire at the time and I met the whole team. I sat down in the room and with some people, um, sat people who were working from other places on Zoom. Might be now, it might make more sense for the whole thing to happen on Zoom, but this was pre-COVID. And I met with all of them because in a speaking agency, you can have people who work on different groups of clients. There can be a corporate person. There can be education people. There can be women's conferences people. There can be, you know, there's all different sports people and they have their domains. And your hope is that you have a team that's working for you, not just one person. Because Laura, my current agent, she tends to do education stuff, but it's really important to me that the sports people know about me and the corporate people know about me and can trust me to be a good speaker, to represent them well. Okay, I have the big meeting with everyone at the agency. It goes really well. What I also did for them at that point was I had been keeping immaculate records of my approaches, who I had emailed, who I'd had contact with, who had responded, who I'd sent books to. Although if you know anything about me, I have not been perfect about keeping track of who gets books and who doesn't. Do yourself a favor and don't be me on that. Keep track of who you're sending books to. It's still my Achilles heel. Okay, so they have all my records now and they know the history. Um, Every once in a while, a lead would come in and I would have had a long history with this contact. And so I would let Michelle know that. I would say, you know, Michelle, I've been in contact with this person two times over three years. We've tried to work this out. We haven't been able to do it. But there's the long history I've had. Not only does it help her sort out whether the whether the lead is coming from her through her or from me. And so it's a difference of 5% between the 25 and the 20%. It also helps her understand the history and come at it with um, a full knowledge base on that client. Okay. So what scared me so much about going to an agency is I, I knew what I was doing and I was good at it. And I'm a known quantity as a teacher. So am I going to scare schools off if I say I have an agent? Does that automatically mean that they can't afford me? You know, how do I make sure that even if my agent negotiates and they can't get the budget that they want, that I can still have the opportunity to work with that organization at a lower fee if it makes sense for me, if it's an organization that I have history with or an organization that's really supported me or because I'm doing it as a favor for a friend. Because there's a threshold below which um, my agent won't take that gig for themselves, won't work with them. And that will come back to me and I'll do the work one-on-one. If you do decide to start working with a speaking agent, continue to keep really immaculate records. It's been really a, a great process for me to have these really great records about who I've worked with so that when the second book comes out, I can do what I've been doing, which is go back to the places where I've already spoken and tell them about my new content. Or if it's been more than four years, 
there's a whole new group of parents um, and students coming through that school. So I can go back and say, hey, it's been five years, four years since you last hired me and um, the reviews were great last time. So um, it, would you be interested in working with me again? And in order to do that, you need to have really good records. So keep really good records. I happen to keep Excel spreadsheets. There's also those CRM databases, contact resource management, I don't know, that you can do that as well. I happen to use Excel because it's there and it's what I've been using. The onboarding is a process, meaning like getting to work with the agent, learning each other, making sure that you're getting the, I was used to getting all the information, but I don't want to be too much of a pain in the butt with my agent. I don't want to chase them constantly and say, how'd that lead go? I had to start letting go and trusting that they were going to let me know about it. At times I have wanted more information. At times I've wanted less information. So my agent now knows that I need her to let me, you know, that she acknowledges receipt of a lead. I need for her to check in with me when the lead is either dead. As happened today, actually, there was an organization that got in touch and they had no budget whatsoever. She let me know the lead was dead. I got back in touch with that with that lead and said, is there any other way I can help? And by the way, here are the videos I've made on this topic. I understand you have no budget to hire me, but here's some other resources that could be helpful for you. Here's my speaking bibliography. Here's the videos I put up daily on Instagram on these topics. So I try to keep that you know, keep that conversation open because I want to be helpful. Um, the person that I emailed today, they'd ha- they'd suffered a very personal loss within um, to substance use within their very small group at work. And that's devastating. And I don't want to just say, sorry, I can't help you because you don't have the money. I want to say, you know, I, I'm sorry that we can't make an in-person event work, but here are some other resources. And if you need anything else from me, please let me know. Maybe because they will have a budget in the future and maybe just because it's important to me that this information gets out there. Um, so that's another thing that I do. So before you, I guess to, to sum up, before you go trying to chase down, you know, a potential speaking agent, do some talking, talk to people who do. I'm willing in especially one-on-one to be very honest about who I will and won't work with either as clients, because that's happened too, or as um, speaking agencies. There's a really steep learning curve and, and I've learned a lot from doing it myself. I've learned how book tours work. A lot of people expect you to speak for free when they might not otherwise. Um, There are big organizations that expect you to speak for free when you have a book coming out. And I didn't fully understand that when my first book came out and it led to some miscommunications and it led to to some misunderstandings. And when you have uh, friends, colleagues who are doing that kind of stuff, you can learn a lot from them. Uh, Ron Lieber and I had a book come out at the same time, as did actually Peggy Ornstein. And we traded notes uh, on people, places that we spoke and and what was helpful and what wasn't. Ron's book came out before mine did. That one was called The Opposite of Spoiled. And we did like a big brain dump of what helped and what didn't help. I took notes for him. He took notes for me. And also, I want to point out, Ron has a story about one organization he worked with that was the biggest disaster, someone he will never, ever work with in the future. And for me, it was a wonderful experience. I don't know if that came down to topic. I don't know if that came down to the people. The people we worked with were the same. I don't know if that came down to gender. I don't know what it came down to, but all I know is for him, one of the worst experiences of his career, for me, great experience. So 
who knows? Who knows why some things go some way and some things don't, but having more information rather than less is great. Before you go to those agents who possibly you might want to work with, um, get your website ready, have your social media numbers at, at on hand, have built some sort of platform video content for them to say, oh, so here's what you do on stage. Now, one of the things you can do is if you're going to do an event at a place that is being recorded and it's being recorded really professionally, ask if you can have access to that video. Ask if you can either download it or access a lot of them, put it up on YouTube, that kind of thing. Um, whether or not they record video and that's okay with you is a whole other topic. I ask people to get written permission for me before they video. And then we have, I have parameters after that, how long they can leave it up, whether or not it's password protected, all that kind of stuff. Get those people to do the work. And then if you can't do that, think about hiring a professional videographer or slash photographer if you're going to be in, for example, if I was in Austin, I have a friend there who's a professional photographer. I would probably hire her to take some pictures. Know that when people take pictures of you when you're speaking, the pictures are going to be, 90% of them are going to be awful because you will be making weird facial expressions. You will look bizarre. Catching speakers looking good on stage is an art and it means taking a ton of pictures that are awful before you get to the ones that are good. And some of you know what I do with the super goofy ones. I keep those. I think it's it's important to keep those. And when I do talks with girls about um, curating their their social media feeds and being perfect all the time. I like to show them the pictures of me looking super goofy and say, look, you know, I don't get hired to speak because I'm perfect or because I'm pretty. I get hired to speak because I get lost in what I do because I'm passionate about it. And when you get lost in what you do because you're passionate about it, sometimes you look like this and that's me fully engaged and loving what I do. And yeah, does it look goofy? Absolutely. And I am thrilled with that because that means that I am having a great time up on stage, which means the people who are watching me are probably having a good time. At least I hope. Do I fall flat on my face sometimes? Literally, metaphorically? Absolutely. But, you know, in the meantime, I look goofy doing what I do. So think about hiring. Think about, you know, the cost benefit analysis. If you can afford that, it can be a great investment. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful and keep asking questions in the hashtag am, am writing Facebook group. If you want me to talk more about this, there are a lot of people who are in this exact situation of just getting started as speakers in there. And I try to answer as many questions as I can in there. Um, but in the meantime, this is one way to get the information across and flatten the learning curve. So again, thanks so much for listening. If you have questions, go to the hashtag I'm writing Facebook page. Please subscribe. Please leave reviews for us um, wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, the Apple uh, uh, podcast uh, uh, is the best place to leave those because that's where a lot of people go. But leave reviews wherever. It helps people find us and we really, really appreciate it. So until next week butt in the chair and your head in the game. The hashtag am writing podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music aptly titled unemployed Monday was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work.
save. Pause. Stop. Stop. Thank you. Writers, I know you love Serena Bowen, but have you read Serena Bowen? If you haven't, you should. First off, because her books are killer fun, and secondly, because every one is a masterclass in pacing, characterization, and plot. And if you think plotting romance is easy because, quote, we know what's going to happen, unquote, then call me again after you've tried it. Her latest is The New Guy, but if you're new to her world, I strongly recommend Brooklyn Air. Bet you can't stop with just one. Find out more at serenabowen.com.